This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today, the committee will hold a, nomina uh, will hold a nominations hearing for four important positions. Our nominees today are Ms. Lisa Kenna to be ambassador to Peru, Ms. Leora Levy to be ambassador to Chile, uh, the Honorable Eldana Vosh to be ambassador to Canada, and Mr. William Bob to be ambassador to Guatemala. One of our own, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, will be introducing his fellow, what do you call a Connecticut person, Chris? Connecticutor, what, what is it? Nutmeggers, I like that. All right, he will be introducing another person from Connecticut, Ms. Uh, uh, Leora Levy. So with that, uh, uh, we'll, we'll postpone our opening statements and uh, give Senator Murphy the opportunity to make the introduction. Senator Murphy. Yeah, it's a raging debate, frankly, Mr. Chairman, as to what you call those of us from Connecticut. I grew up with thinking it was Connecticution. Others say Connecticutter. Nutmegger is probably the safest, so maybe we've helped everybody learn something today. Uh, I'm really excited, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the opportunity to introduce to the committee uh, Leora Levy, who's um, nominee to be the um, United States Ambassador to Chile. Uh, Leora and I had the chance to sit down in my office uh, a few months back, and uh, I'm glad that she is now before the committee for confirmation. She uh, was born in Havana, Cuba. She fled to America with her family uh, in 1960, and she spent uh, a lot of her childhood in North Carolina, um, but uh, came to uh, Connecticut in 1988. Um, before, though, coming to Connecticut, she uh, went to Brown University uh, and began a career on Wall Street where she became one of the first female commodity traders. Uh, and um, we were very uh, glad that when she uh, and her family located to Connecticut, she became incredibly involved in philanthropic endeavors. Uh, she um, has been very involved in the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies of New York, um, but in Connecticut has been on the board uh, and co-chair actually of the board of the Bruce Museum of Art uh, and a director of Soldier Strong, which is a Connecticut-based organization uh, that works with paralyzed veterans. Um, she uh, is the finance chairman, has been the finance chairman of the Connecticut Republican Party, and admittedly, I think she has raised a decent amount of money for uh, my uh, political opponents over the years, and uh, though maybe politics doesn't stop exactly at the water's edge any longer, uh, I think it really is uh, important for us to uh, support folks uh, who have the qualifications that she does, uh, regardless of political party um, and political affiliation. So uh, thank you to the chairman for bringing her before the committee today. I look forward to uh, her testimony and our committee's questions. And, let me, and, can I, and I, can I just add, Senator Blumenthal uh, was planning to be here to also offer an introduction, but he is caught up between another committee and votes on the floor, so he asks me to send his regards. Thank you, frequently happens here. So today we'll consider the nominations of these four individuals to serve our nation in four important posts in the Western Hemisphere. I welcome each of you to the committee and thank you each for your commitment to public service and importantly your family who will share in uh, your sacrifices. Uh, first, we have uh, Ms. Lisa Kenna, nominated to be ambassador to Peru. Ms. Kenna is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service who serves as the Executive Secretary of the Department of State. Her diplomatic careers included assignments in Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Before joining the Foreign uh, Service, Ms. Kenna practiced law. Peru and the U.S. are approaching 200 years of diplomatic relations. Our partnership rests on shared interest in democracy, respect for human rights, mutually beneficial trade, and security. Uh, all of us encourage the administration to continue collaborating with Peru to confront the pandemic and promote transparent governance and investment rules 
uh, quality infrastructure and effective law enforcement. I look forward to hearing about your plans to steer this important diplomatic relationship through any challenges that might occur ahead. Uh, Ms. Levy's already been introduced, uh, but uh, she will uh, go to Chile. Is, uh, and Chile is one of our closest partners in Latin America and is a successful free market democracy is a beacon of hope in the region. Chile has had a free trade agreement with the U.S. since 2004 and is the only Latin American country in the visa waiver program. Many of us are concerned about Chile's participation in the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Chilean institutions have repelled the worst aspects of China's state-directed financing for now. But that can change as Chile seeks to finance growing demands for public services. I look forward to hearing from you on the best course of action to strengthen U.S. interests in, uh, in Chile. Third, we have uh, Dr. Eldana Vosh, nominated to be ambassador to Canada. Uh, Dr. Vosh is vice chair of President's Commission on White House Fellowships. She previously served as U.S. ambassador to Estonia, a position for which she was confirmed unanimously by the Senate in November 2004. She is also a licensed physician with a distinguished career in healthcare and has served as Secretary of Health and Human Services for the state of North Carolina. Canada is a top trading partner, a NATO ally, and a critical partner in the defense of uh, democratic principles around the globe. In 2027, we will celebrate 200 years of formal diplomatic relations. Every day, billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people cross the U.S.-Canadian border, the longest undefended border in the world. Whether it is competition with China, uh, Russian belligerents in the Arctic, the Homeland Defense mission against ballistic missile threats or cybersecurity, we must ensure our unique relationship with Canada adapts to emerging strategic challenges and opportunities. In the short term, our pandemic response must account for the particular characteristics of and minimize the economic cost to communities on both sides of our shared borders. On a, uh, a parochial uh, matter, Ambassador Vash, I want to specifically call your attention to the current negotiations over the Columbia River Treaty. Uh, I've been closely engaged in that with my partner, Senator Marie Cantwell, and between the two of us, uh, we have uh, uh, partnered with the State Department as uh, negotiations continue over the Columbia River Treaty. This treaty is, a, is of primary importance to the people of Idaho and to the Pacific Northwest. It will greatly impact our water and our economy. I'm following it very closely, as is, with, as is Marie, as Senator Cantwell, and we are working closely together on that issue. I ask that you make the successful and speedy conclusion of those negotiations a top priority of your service should you be confirmed. I look forward to hearing your views on, uh, on ways we can better address our shared challenges. Fourth, we have Mr. William Bopp, nominated to be Ambassador to Guatemala. Mr. Bopp, Mr. Pop is career member of the Senior Foreign Service and most recently served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy uh, in Brazil. Before, this time in, before his time in Brazil, Mr. Pop served in several economic-related uh, diplomatic posts. As uh, fellow democracies, the U.S. and Guatemala share an interest in responding to our citizens' expectations for good governance, economic prosperity, and public safety, including through effective uh, border security and an orderly migration system. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on advancing this important partnership. With that, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm you know, forced to note that this is another in a series of hearings that you've noticed unilaterally and over democratic objections. Uh, earlier this week, I mentioned more than 60 oversight requests I sent to Secretary Pompeo, requests that have almost entirely gone unanswered. 
After four years, the administration's policy on oversight request is crystal clear, a complete rejection of Congress's constitutional authority in foreign affairs and corresponding responsibility to conduct oversight. And unless they absolutely have to engage with us, they will not. The only way to change that dynamic is if we stick up for ourselves and we don't let ourselves be bullied either by the President or the Secretary of State. And unfortunately, that's not happening. Ms. Kenna, a senior aide to Secretary Pompeo, one of the nominees on today's panel, is a case in point. Chairman Engel and I have joint outstanding requests to interview Ms. Kenna in relation to two separate and corrosive episodes. The first relates to the political targeting of career employees at the State Department by Trump appointees. And the second concerns the firing of the State Department Inspector General while he had an active investigation into Secretary Pompeo. The department is stonewalling as usual. They will not authorize Ms. Kenna to sit for an interview. So as a last resort, we urge you not to move forward with a nominations hearing for her. Now, I sympathize with Ms. Kenna. The department has put her in a terrible position. But why should we move forward with a nominee when the Department of State is refusing to authorize her to speak with Congress on critical oversight matters? The stonewalling is particularly egregious here given that the Secretary of State is seeking to hide his own possible wrongdoing in connection with the firing of Steve Linick. This undermines our role and our ability to do our jobs on behalf of the American people and it should not have happened regardless of how much pressure the Secretary has put. I need to make one last point before I turn to some country-specific issues. Mr. Chairman, you frequently indicated that my objections to your handling of certain nominations are related to political or policy differences, and I'm honestly not sure what you mean by that. Is asking for an interview with Ms. Kenna to find out what she knows about the firing of the State Department Inspector General a political or policy difference? Is urging Michael Pack to acknowledge and fix his false statements to the committee and the IRS a political or policy difference? Is asking for more information concerning allegations that Doug Manchester engaged in blatantly sexist behavior and created a hostile work environment for female employees a political or policy difference? I don't think so. Now, we're reviewing the nomination for Canada at a particularly turbulent time in U.S.-Canada relations. The Trump administration's approach has included the levying of tariffs due to supposed national cons security considerations, a half-baked attempt to block the export of protected masks during the pandemic, and the occasional insult hurled by a White House senior advisor at Prime Minister Trudeau. I think we can agree that these are the tactics we aim at an economic adversary, not at one of our top trading partners. That is how we treat our enemies, not an ally whose sons and daughters have fought and died alongside American soldiers in multiple theaters over the last century. But amidst, amidst this chaos, there have been some positive advances. Uh, thanks to Democratic leadership, we were able to include stronger provisions on labor and environmental standards in the new U.S.-Canada-Mexico Free Trade Agreement, provisions that will directly benefit American workers and families. So I hope to hear a new approach from our nominee on how we can actually strengthen our alliance and economic partnership with Canada. I'm pleased that at my request, the nominee for Guatemala has been added to this panel. The challenges in Guatemala require steady leadership, but again, I have been deeply troubled by the president's policies, 
For a year, the administration suspended foreign assistance to Guatemala, the very funding we need to advance our national interests and address the violence and poverty forcing people to flee their country. We coerced the Guatemalan government into a supposed safe third country agreement so that we can transfer asylum seekers from the United States to pursue protection in Guatemala, an agreement that endangers the lives of vulnerable people and appears to conflict with US law. And we've deported dozens of COVID-positive individuals back to Guatemala during the pandemic and threatened Guatemalan officials with visa sanctions if they refuse the, the flights. It's disturbing, yet hardly surprising, that Guatemalan president said in May, quote, I don't believe the US is an ally to Guatemala because they don't treat us like one. So I look forward to our nominees' thoughts on that. Aside from the oversight matters I mentioned, I'm also pleased we are reviewing a nomination for Peru, a close diplomatic, economic, and security partner in addressing the political and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, even as they've experienced their own political turmoil in the last two years and struggled with COVID-19. And lastly, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Ms. Levy about some of her previous comments that she has made. I wanna understand if that is the nature of what we can expect if she were to be confirmed as a United States ambassador. With that, Mr. Chairman, I uh, look forward to the nominee's uh, testimony. To each of the nominees, thank you again for your willingness to serve. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record, so uh, uh, we would ask that you keep your remarks to about five minutes, and then you'll be uh, asked to answer questions. So we'll start with Lisa McKenna. The floor is yours for your opening statement. Chairman Risch. Ranking Member Menendez and distinguished members of the committee. It's an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Peru. I thank the President and Secretary Pompeo for placing their trust in me. And if confirmed, I will work diligently with members of this committee and other members of Congress to advance American interests, strengthen cooperation with our friend Peru across all sectors, and to further promote our shared values of democracy, prosperity, and greater security throughout the region. I would like to thank my two daughters, Amelia and Isabel, who are here with me today for understanding and supporting my commitment to public service. These two young women are the embodiment of resilience, and I could not be more proud of who they are and what they represent. I also thank my sister, Julie, my mother-in-law, Connie Kenna, and my incredible group of professional colleagues and friends and family for the support they've given me and Amelia and Isabel, particularly in the many years since the death of my husband, Roger, and my mother, Marjorie, who were so central to my life. I'm blessed to come from a family that believes in serving our country and others. My mother was raised by her own single mother on a tiny farm in Indiana and dedicated her life to caring for nursing home residents as a volunteer social worker for 40 years. My father served for decades as a pilot in the Air Force. I myself began my government service in my final year of college and have served faithfully across both Republican and Democratic administrations ever since. The longer I've been in public service, the more I am convinced that America is the world's most exceptional nation. Over the past five years, as a senior staffer for three different secretaries of state, I've had the great privilege of working on virtually every issue of foreign policy consequence, including those in concerning the Western Hemisphere 
and Peru specifically. If confirmed, I will maintain the United States' vital relationship with Peru, which has long been one of our closest partners in the region. Recently, Mission Peru has performed heroically to sustain our strong partnership and serve our fellow Americans in these challenging times. As you know, when the government of Peru closed its borders to stem the spread of COVID-19, thousands of American citizens requested support in returning to the United States. The State Department and my team in the Operations Center that staffed the Repatriation Task Force worked closely with Peruvian authorities, local partners, and airlines to repatriate over 12,000 American citizens and legal permanent residents. We will not rest until the last American who wishes to return home from Peru has the opportunity to do so. In terms of further fighting the virus, President Trump and President Vizcarra recently affirmed their intention to intensify cooperation, and the United States has offered additional support to meet Peru's healthcare needs. As we move to reopen our economies, we hope to again focus on more traditional areas of cooperation, including security, democratic governance, trade, and cultural and educational ties. We must also expand our joint efforts to tackle the scourge of transnational organized crime that threatens both of our countries, including by cutting off the sources of illicit financing. American investments to dismantle the narcotics trade and reduce the cultivation and production of coca and cocaine have paid some dividends. Although there is considerably more work to be done, the government of Peru has committed to eradicating coca with U.S. support in the country's highest yield areas. Illegal mining, which is linked to narco-trafficking and transnational criminal networks, endangers public health, damages Peru's environment, and promotes human trafficking. To better fight the problem together, our government signed an agreement in 2017 that will provide economic development alternatives and enhance Peru's capacity to prosecute cases connected with illegal mining. The U.S. and Peru are also growing our shared support for a peaceful return to democracy in Venezuela. Maduro's man-made crisis has driven millions to flee their country, and Peru, as founder of the Lima Group, has shown leadership in generously hosting nearly one million displaced Venezuelans and frequently calling out the regime for its flagrant human rights abuses. Trade, tourism, and educational exchanges have drawn our two countries closer together in recent years. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, the annual number of U.S. visitors to Peru exceeded 580,000, and the United States remains a primary destination for Peruvian students seeking to study abroad. So too are we growing closer in trade. 2019 marked the 10th anniversary of the U.S.-Peru Trade Promotion Agreement, a cornerstone of our bilateral relationship that sets high standards for both countries concerning market access and protections for both investments and the environment. If confirmed, I will continue to build the important bonds, economic and otherwise, for the peoples of both countries. I would look forward to working with this committee to achieve our shared goals, and I am happy to answer all of your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Cannon. Will I now hear from uh, Ms. Levy? 
I don't think your microphone's on. It's all right. Is this on? Ah, now it's on. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before this committee seeking your confirmation to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Chile. I am humbled and grateful to have the trust and confidence of President Trump and Secretary Pompeo. If confirmed, I will work every day to be a champion of American diplomacy. I would like to recognize my family, my husband Steve and son David behind me, and my sons, sorry, Michael and Ben, who couldn't be with me today but are here in spirit. And my parents, Zava and Tom Rosenberg, who brought me to America and instilled in me a fierce love for our country and our freedoms. Their love and support have enabled me to pursue this lifelong dream to serve my country. I was born in Cuba and escaped Castro's communist revolution with my family in 1960. My family history also includes the perilous escape of my mother and her parents from Lithuania to Cuba in 1940. At Brown University, I majored in international relations and passed the foreign service exam as a senior. But I took a different path and became one of the first women commodity traders on Wall Street as an international sugar trader, steel trader, and copper concentrates cop uh, traffic executive, shipping hundreds of thousands of tons of copper concentrates from Chile to ports around the world. As a patriot, civic leader, philanthropist, and businesswoman, my leadership experience and demonstrated ability to achieve results make me a strong candidate to represent the American people as a U.S. ambassador. If confirmed, I would be proud to lead the embassy in Santiago with representatives from seven cabinet-level agencies and outstanding locally employed staff who make it possible to advance U.S. interests and values, delivering important results for the American people. Chile is one of our strongest allies in the hemisphere. The United States and Chile hold deeply shared values and commitments to democratic governance, regional security, human rights, rule of law, and free markets to create economic opportunity and prosperity for all. In a recent telephone call, President Trump thanked President Piñera for Chile's unwavering support for democracy and freedom in the region. As the United States, Chile, and many countries around the world battle the COVID-19 pandemic, President Trump also offered U.S. assistance to help Chile provide critical care to its citizens. The president praised Chile's proactive and balanced approach to protecting the health and livelihoods of Chileans. If confirmed, I would strive to enhance this cooperation between our countries in the fight against COVID-19. Having followed developments of the civil unrest in Chile since October 2019, it is encouraging to see that the Chilean government, opposition parties, civil society, and groups who feel disenfranchised have made steady progress toward resolving outstanding issues through civil discourse, balanced legislation, and the rule of law grounded in strong democratic institutions as they approach an October referendum on the question of whether to write a new constitution. 
Chile has been a regional model of the transformational possibilities of democratic governance and free markets to achieve stable economic growth and enduring prosperity. Both the United States and Chile support free, fair, and reciprocal trade. Since our free trade agreement went into effect in 2004, bilateral trade has tripled. Supporting U.S. businesses in Chile and Chilean businesses investing in the United States will further enhance economic opportunity and prosperity for both countries. Chile is home to the oldest and largest Fulbright program in the hemisphere. The 2,700 Chileans who study at U.S. colleges and universities contribute to our mutual understanding and provide substantial support to our higher education sector. Thousands of Americans traveler, travelers visit Chile to discover its rich culture and marvel at its natural beauty every year. Prior to the pandemic, the number of Chileans visiting the U.S. increased more than fourfold in the last five years. When it is once again safe to travel, I would, if confirmed, work to encourage even more robust and wide-ranging trade, tourism, and people-to-people -people engagements between our countries. From collaboration in science and technology to educational and cultural exchanges, investment in sustainable energy, support for entrepreneurship, and small and medium enterprises, and the promotion of democratic values, U.S.-Chile cooperation benefits both of our countries and reaffirms the United States as Chile's like-minded, reliable partner of choice. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the Chilean government and Chilean people to build upon our strong relationship and to promote our shared values. I would also look forward to working with your committee, your colleagues, staff, and all U.S. stakeholders to advance the interests of the United States and to deepen the bonds between our countries. If given the honor of serving as U.S. Ambassador to Chile, my top priority will always be the safety and security of embassy staff and all Americans in Chile. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Levy. We'll now turn to Dr. Bosch. Thank you. Chairman Rush and Ranking Member Menendez and distinguished members of this committee, I am honored to be with you here today as President Trump's nominee to the next U.S. Ambassador to Canada I'm grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their trust and confidence in me to lead our engagement with our neighbor and important ally Canada. I am appreciative of the time that the members of this committee and staff have spent with me. The United States-Canada relationship is one of enduring strength. It is built on broad and deep ties between our peoples, shared value, extensive trade, strategic global cooperation and defense partnerships. If confirmed, my priorities will be to actively support our national security, encourage economic growth and prosperity, and promote resilience at Mission Canada. Canada is one of our most important partners and allies. As a member of NATO, the Organization of American States, the United Nations, and many other forums, Canada has served valiantly to advance missions in Iraq, Baltics, and Central and Eastern Europe. If confirmed, I will encourage Canada to continue to provide critical capabilities to the Alliance by meeting the commitments that all NATO leaders agreed to in the 2014 Wales Pledge. 
As the former United States Ambassador to Estonia, I firsthand witnessed the value of NATO. The United States and Canada share continental security through NORAD, the only binational military command in the world. To date, we take on many international priorities, including issues concerning China, Russia, the Ukraine, Iran, Venezuela, counterterrorism, and the Arctic. Canada is also one of our closest intelligent partners and a member of the Five Eyes Alliance. If confirmed, I will build on our existing bilateral cooperation to counter China's malign activities and to continue to raise concerns regarding the authorization of access to the 5G networks by Huawei and other untrusted vendors. I will make clear the United States government's deep concern over China's retaliatory and arbitrary detention of two Canadian citizens. The United States-Canada bilateral trade and investment relationship is one of the world's largest. Each year, we exchange over $700 billion in goods and services. Canada is the largest market for export goods for 30 states. Prior to the pandemic, about 400,000 people and $2 billion worth of goods and services crossed our borders daily. More than 14 million Americans cross the world's longest land border to visit Canada each year. Our countries share highly integrated supply chains, electrical grids, and energy transmissions. The USMCA will strengthen and expand our econ econ economies in the digital age. And we must continue to promote transparent and reliable sources of critical minerals through open and sustainable supply chains. Throughout the pandemic, our governments have worked together at the highest level. My experience is battling emerging health threats such as HIV and AIDS as a doctor in New York City, and the Ebola virus threats as Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, revealed the importance of collaboration and communication with all stakeholders to ensure the health and welfare of our citizens. For me, Mission Canada is personal. I was born under imposed communist rule to parents Vanda, a slave labor survivor, and Paul Pavel, a righteous Gentile and a concentration camp survivor. We left everything behind in our native Poland seeking political freedom, and we emigrated to the United States on board the MS Batare. In 1961, we landed in Montreal, Canada. The United States, by way of Canada, gave us freedom, dignity, and the opportunity to work towards a secure and prosperous future. As a naturalized citizen, I have deep respect for our fundamental American values of freedom and democracy. I will use what I have learned through my diverse life experiences to represent the interests of the United States and all its citizens with strengthening our critical alliance with Canada. I would like to take this opportunity to thank my family for their unwavering love and support and to introduce my son, Andrew, who was able to accompany me here today. To the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today 
I look forward to answering and all your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bosch. We'll now turn to Mr. Pop. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you as the President's nominee to serve as the next U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Guatemala. I would like to begin by recognizing my family. In particular, I want to thank my wife of 21 years, Milena, and my daughter, Alicia Pilar. I'm grateful to both of them for joining me in the privilege, joys, and sacrifices of serving our nation overseas. As a career foreign service officer, I have been honored to represent the United States in six postings across Latin America and Africa, from Nicaragua to Angola, Colombia to Brazil, Kenya back to Brazil. I have advanced U.S. interests and worked with partner nations to achieve shared goals. Most recently, I served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Brazil, our sixth largest diplomatic mission in the world, including 21 months as Chargé d'Affaires. If confirmed, I believe this experience will be valuable in leading our mission and deepening our partnership with Guatemala. The United States and Guatemala share a historic relationship, strong economic ties and mutual security interests, as well as deep people-to-people -people bonds. As close neighbors and democratic nations, we both gain immensely from enhanced cooperation. Since his inauguration in January, President Giamatte has prioritized partnering with the United States. He's demonstrated commitment to increasing security, curbing irregular migration, fighting corruption, spurring private sector-driven growth, and supporting democracy. We are at a moment of important opportunity to maximize our partnership. At the same time, we face a tremendous challenge of COVID-19. More than ever, it is vital that we work together. First, protecting our citizens' security, combating crime, and addressing the regional challenge of irregular migration must be priorities. It is key to work together to dismantle transnational criminal organizations, increase border security, strengthen justice institutions, and highlight the dangers associated with a long journey to the U.S. border. With U.S. partnership, Guatemala is making progress. New courts have been established for prosecuting human traffickers, extortion cases, and femicide. Strong cooperation with the Guatemalan Navy Special Forces has reduced maritime narcotics trafficking, and migrant encounters of Guatemala's at the U.S. southern border have significantly fallen over the last year. Notwithstanding this progress, more capacity building is needed, as well as the sustained commitment of all branches of the government of Guatemala. Second, it is vital that we broaden prosperity for both <coughs> countries by unleashing private investment, expanding trade, and increasing formal sector employment. With one of the youngest populations in the world, the lowest tax revenue collection rate in the Americas, and nearly 60% of the population living in poverty, generating opportunities for Guatemalan youth, women, and the indigenous community is imperative. Our assistance is an important part of the solution, but so is working with the public and private sectors to create an enabling environment for businesses to thrive. If confirmed, I will seek to create more opportunities that benefit both Guatemalan and U.S. businesses. Third, it is crucial to promote the rule of law, fight corruption, respect human labor rights, and end impunity. U.S. assistance is strengthening Guatemala's judicial institutions, and President Giamatte has taken an important step to establish a new anti-corruption commission in the executive branch. Together, we are fostering a dialogue with the indigenous communities and civil society in Guatemala. We should deepen efforts to build the integrity of public institutions and enhance access to justice, as well as bolster space for civil society. A more just and inclusive Guatemala will help address challenges for both our countries. 15 minutes. 
Finally, Guatemala is an ally in creating a hemisphere for freedom. President Giamate's recognition of Venezuela's legitimate government and democratically elected National Assembly, as well as his breaking of ties with the illegitimate Maduro regime and his reinforcement with relations with Taiwan, are powerful, powerful statements. Closer U.S.-Guatemala cooperation and will benefit our citizens, as well as increase freedom more broadly. In conclusion, if confirmed, I will work steadfastly to advance U.S. interests and values. That begins with protecting the over 60,000 U.S. citizens who reside in Guatemala, as well as the thousands who visit each year. It also means pursuing a shared agenda with Guatemalan partners for security, prosperity, good governance, and democracy. If confirmed as chief of mission, I will lead the nearly 550 American and Guatemalan professionals in Mission Guatemala to advance this agenda by creating a safe, inclusive, and respectful workplace. I will vigilantly safeguard resources and maximize effectiveness across U.S. agencies to build a more secure and prosperous future with Guatemala. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much. And again, thank you to uh, all of our witnesses. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of uh, three votes on the floor. I think all of us voted uh, on the first one. What I'm, uh, what I'm going to do is uh, get down to the end of the second one, and we will recess uh, while we all go down and vote on the second one and the beginning of the third, and then we'll be done with the three votes. In the meantime, we'll start questioning. So with that, Senator Menendez. Chairman, a procedural question, if I may. Uh, are, are we not close to the end of the second vote? 15 minutes left, Senator. Oh, 15 minutes left. Okay, thank you. Um, Ms. Kenna, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, while I'm pleased that we have a nominee for Peru, I'm dismayed that you are appearing at this hearing without having complied with a request by Chairman Engel and I, outstanding since February, to be interviewed on critical matters. And while I put the onus of the responsibility on the State Department, the failure to comply with the congressional request on critical <coughs> oversight matters is also reflection on you, one that I hope you can correct. So let me start off by asking, will you commit to complying with all outstanding congressional requests for interview and testimony, which include political retaliation and events surrounding the firing of the State Department Inspector General? Senator, uh, thank you for your comments. Um, I am happy to appear and to cooperate and to comply with the requests. I have already offered a date, August 7th, to the committees uh, for that interview. All right, that's the first of my knowledge. And when you say to the committee, to that, this is a joint request. So I, I want you to understand that as far as I'm concerned, yes, Chairman Engel has a request, and I have a request as a ranking member to join in that. I understand that, Senator. And it's my understanding as well that this was a joint request, and our offer was to the joint committee. So you're committing to appearing uh, to answer all of these questions on August the 7th. Is that correct? That was my offer. It, yes, it was. the offer was extended by the State Department uh, to the committees. I believe it was part of a larger package. OK. Yes. I'm, I'm going to review that, because uh, at 10-11 today, four minutes before this hearing began, which is a complete insult, uh, to send us a message four minutes before the hearing began. Uh, the State Department said that you were ready to answer questions today, which, of course, in a five-minute interval that I have and with four minutes' notice would not deal with the breadth and scope of issues that we seek to review with you. So uh, I'm going to hold you to that commitment to August 7th, uh, and I'm going to judge 
the ability of proceeding with your nomination based upon your conformance uh, with, with that. Um, let me, uh, uh, while I have you here, uh, um, let me ask you, you, you served in the Secretary's office during some of the most questionable events in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, chief among them was the administration's withholding of U.S. security assistance to Ukraine. As we all now know, our U.S. policy towards Ukraine was hijacked by unofficial channels, influenced by rogue actors with their own financial interests at heart, and Russian disinformation that was peddled into the highest levels of the State Department. But you were there in the middle of it at the time. As Ambassador Sondland infamously testified, everyone was in the loop about Rudy Giuliani's involvement in Ukraine. And when he said everyone, he specifically named you. Now, you've been a career foreign service officer for 20 years. You're no novice to the Secretary's office or how foreign policy is run. Was there ever any point where you stopped and thought to yourself, this is not OK? Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, I um, was not part of any policy discussions on Ukraine. So um, it is true that I was copied on some emails that Ambassador Sondland sent. Um, I understand I was copied largely because I, I was being asked to um, handle follow-up in terms of requesting phone calls. Certainly when he says everyone was in the know, that would not include me. I was not part of policy discussions on Ukraine. Uh, were you part of policy discussions on anything? Sorry, on it. Were you part of policy discussions on anything? Part of my role as the executive secretary is to review um, memoranda, both for information and for decision, that go to the Secretary of State to ensure that they have received proper review by other, other offices in the department. Um, I rarely join policy discussions. Interesting. Uh, what about when Ambassador Yovanovitch was recalled early for no reason other than she was subject to false attacks? Did you think that that was OK? It was a very painful and difficult time, Senator. Um, I absolutely respect Ambassador Yovanovitch. She was one of our, our strongest career ambassadors. Um, she's the consummate professional. It was very difficult to see what she went through at that time. So it's my understanding that she was recalled because the president lost confidence in her. And every ambassador understands that we serve at the pleasure of the, at the president. That does not mean that that experience was not very, very painful. So if you uh, achieve this goal and uh, somebody loses confidence in with you simply because of politics, do you accept that as a career foreign service that's officer, that that's the way you should be dispelled? We have no other choice, Senator. Really? We, we serve so let me ask you this. As executive secretary, you see essentially all the memos and paper that go to the secretary, correct? Nearly all, yes. And you're aware of the calls coming into the secretary's office and the calls that he makes through you, is that correct? I'm aware of the vast majority of them, yes. You were fully aware that Rudy Giuliani was communicating with and providing documents to the secretary in March of 2019, is that correct? I did, was not aware of what the documents were about, no. 
I was but that he was, but that he was, but that he was providing documents. You were aware of that. I was aware that he delivered a package. I was not aware of the contents, nor did I review that package. So, as you sat in the secretary's office, you were aware that Rudy Giuliani was bringing documents to the secretary not long before Ambassador Yovanovitch was recalled early from Kiev, and you thought nothing of it. At the time, I I did not know what the documents were about. Well, what do you make of it now? It's, it's deeply disturbing. Is there else any, that you, anything you would have done, or in hindsight, that you would have wished you had done? Senator, my, my role is, as executive secretary is to, to run in the operations center, which you know, staffs the task forces that mitigate crises ranging from natural disasters to COVID-19 to threats of violence against our embassies. I, I run the, the unit that reviews the, the memos uh, that go to the secretary. I, I do my best every day to run a professional operation that base, is based on integrity and respect for processes. Um, it, I am not a, a policy advisor to the Secretary of State, and I was not included in discussions regarding the recall of Ambassador Yovanovitch or, or our general policy. Well, Mr. Chairman, I have, I have many other questions uh, for Ms. Kenna, and I have questions for the other panelists. My time is well over. I'll wait for a second round. Thank you, Senator. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for having this hearing. Uh, once again, we have an opportunity to help fill some positions that are crucial for our country's uh, national security, in this case, some key ambassadorships, and I appreciate all of you your willingness to step forward. I do have some questions for you. Uh, Ms. Levy, I'd like to start with you. Um, I really appreciated the opportunity to talk to you, uh, at least by phone, in these, uh, in these virtual days, about your views on Chile. And we talked a lot about issues and politics and policy. Uh, I've had the opportunity to visit, as you know, a few times. We've talked about that. I know you know the country well. You know the culture. You know the language. Se puede hablar español, verdad? See, sí, uh, yo hablo español. Soy cubana. Sí. Cubana americana. Como una cubana, verdad? Sí. Uh, well, you were born in Cuba. Yes, uh, I was. And uh, and came to the United States with your family, uh, as you said. I I just uh, I think it's really important we have somebody in these countries right now who really gets it, understands the culture, the language, and can immediately hit the ground running. Uh, one of my concerns has been Chinese influence, as you know. Uh, in Latin America, and in particular in Chile. I know the, the fruit growers, as an example, are interested in an arrangement with, with, uh, with China, and there's other discussions of additional investments. Um, and I think it's important that the United States have a, you know, have a strong position and that, we are, that, that our presence is, is uh, assertive and, and helpful to the Chilean people. I know that President Piñera uh, has worked well with this administration, and I know that their commitment to human rights, to democracy, uh, to free markets, really lines up with us better than other countries, including China. Uh, so I wonder if you had any thoughts on that, how we can ensure that the U.S. presence, and this would go really to the other um, members uh, of the panel also, because all of you will be dealing with this issue. How can we be sure that the, the relationships, the shared values that we have with these countries are emphasized uh, to increase uh, America's role in these countries. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. 
Thank you very much for that important question, Senator Portman. Um, yes, in fact, uh, China's increasing, uh, increasingly aggressive diplomatic posturing and what I call their hegemonic economic encroachment in Chile in the region and in other countries throughout the world will be a challenge for the next ambassador. And if confirmed as ambassador to Chile from the United States, I will make it one of my priorities to engage with um, productive dialogue with our ally and partner, Chile, about the shared values that we hold as citizens in free countries, politically free, economically free, we value the rule of law. We, we value the citizens' rights to petition their go government and to governments who respond to their citizens' uh, wishes, not the other way around. Um, human rights, though, that is something that the United States and Chile both hold dear, and you cannot say the same for China. Um, it is evident from the success of our free trade agreement since 2004, which has tripled the trade between our countries, as well as new um, exciting programs like America Crece, which, will, which, which um, supports investment, US investment in infrastructure and energy projects in Chile. Um, as well as the very exciting public-private partnership in science and technology, which harnesses the efforts of governments, the private sector, academia, as well as armed forces in creating new and exciting scientific and technological um, projects in Chile. Those are all uh, platforms that and tools that the next ambassador will be able to use to not only increase our the trade and the mu mutual benefits of trade between our countries, as and also increase the closeness of our partnership. And, and those are the tools that I look forward to using in order to improve and, uh, sorry, to strengthen our already very robust and close relationship. Thank, Thank you very much for that question. Thank you, Ms. Levy. Um, just quickly to Ms. Ms. Kenna, um, the opioid epidemic has obviously hit America hard, uh, as well as the crystal meth and, and um, other drugs coming, including co cocaine. Um, unfortunately, Peru is one of those countries. Uh, I visited Peru. I, I think you know Peru again and the United States have so much in common, and, and the opportunity to increase that relationship in, in positive ways, improve it. But in terms of tackling the scourge of transnational organized crime, can you give us a sense of what you would do as ambassador? Yes, uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, this is obviously a, a core priority, and um, we have seen recently that the statistics concerning uh, drug uh, production have, are, um, have not improved for 2019. And unfortunately, with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is likely that we're going to face a similar situation in 2020. So if confirmed, I would make it my priority to uh, support the government of Peru to, uh, to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic just as quickly as possible so that we could get back to focusing on issues such as transnational organized crime and our counter-narcotics effort. So the U.S. is 
supporting Peru in uh, the counter-narcotics effort in a number of ways, most specifically with interdiction, eradication, and alternative development. We've seen Peru playing a leading role in terms of financing that effort um, in recent years. We would want to continue that uh, trend while the United States would continue its role in terms of providing technical assistance, training, and intelligence sharing. What I understand is that the political will is there to take on this, this challenge. We, we know that President Vizcarra committed to pacifying the, the Vrame region by 2021, which is a, a high yield area for drugs. And so uh, we would want to support uh, the president's efforts in that respect. I understand that um, September and October of this year is another critical opportunity for uh, the Peruvian government in terms of resuming its operations in that high yield area. So illegal mining and illegal logging are other areas that are linked to transnational organized crime. So our support um, in all of those uh, areas is going to be critical. Uh, we are working with the Peruvians to increase their police presence in areas that are currently undergoverned and we uh, support their efforts to restore um, areas that have been subject to environmental deforestation. And we're also working as an interagency group uh, right now here in Washington to explore ways that we could, we could better track the flow of the finances that, that are going to um, illegal mining, illegal logging, and counter-narcotics, because it, that is so critical to ensuring that those funds don't reach the the criminal networks. Well, thank you, Ms. Gannon. I appreciate it, and I think those are all critical issues. My time has expired, and I know members need to run yeah. votes. Th thank you, Senator Portman. As advertised, we're going to take a brief recess while I go down and vote. They tell me I'm the last one, so I'm going to go down and vote, be back as quickly as I can. Uh, feel free to visit amongst yourselves, wear your masks, keep a social distance, and we'll take it back up again as quickly as I can get back here. Senate will be, uh, the, the uh, committee will be at ease, subject to call the chair. list here and Senator Shaheen it's up to you you have the floor thank you. thank you very much mr. chairman and Senator Portman for making that alteration I would like to begin with asking each of you I want to pick up on um, the concerns that Senator Menendez raised about the work environment at the Department of State and I share the concern about the OIG report that political appointees have some political appointees have acted improperly toward career officials on the basis of their perceived political or ideological views. And so I wonder if each of you would answer me the question if confirmed, will you commit to treat career employees in a manner that's consistent with federal laws, regulations governing the management of State Department personnel? And I'll begin with you, um, Ms. Kenna. I heard you say that you try and 
act professionally in your current role, but I wonder if you could just answer that with a simple yes or no. 100% Senator, yes, you have my commitment. I, I operate um, my office with absolute respect for every single in, individual. Um, every day we are an office that embraces inclusivity and uh, differences and diversity, and you have my commitment. Thank you. Um, Ms. Levy. Thank you for that question, Senator. Absolutely, yes. Thank I you. appreciate the question tremendously because I wanted to incorporate into my remarks but did not have enough time to incorporate it. And I would really like to say what an honor and a privilege it has been to work with the professional career officers, both in the State Department and the Foreign Service Institute. Every single person with whom I've interacted and, and worked has been dedicated to the to America, to the United States, to promoting American foreign policy, and to teaching me as best they can to be able to take this role as U.S. Ambassador to Chile. I have nothing but praise for them, and I look forward to continue Thank learning. You. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Waz. Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, absolutely. I commit to treating every person at Mission Canada within, and, of course, the Department of State uh, with enormous respect, and I have a sheer admiration for them, and I will continue to do so as I have previously in my professional career. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Pop. Thank you, Senator. Yes, absolutely. I've done so throughout my career over uh, multiple assignments overseas and in Washington and would absolutely continue to do so if confirmed. Thank, Thank you. you all very much. Um, I, Dr. Wass, I would like to begin with questions for you because New Hampshire has a very strong um, historic relationship with Canada. We have about a third of our citizens who are descendants of French Canadians who have come down to the United States. We have a very strong trading relationship back and forth every day across the border with Canada. And obviously there are currently significant strains on that trading relationship. And we have a number of um, companies also hospitals and medical providers in northern New Hampshire who are affected by the border um, closures because of COVID-19. So can you talk about what we might be able to do that would um, better engage the Canadian government and relevant U.S. agencies to ease some of the restrictions that have been uh, detrimental to U.S. businesses in our northern border regions? Senator, thank you very much for that rather complicated question. We, because of the nature of the pandemic that we all face, it is currently by mutual decision beneficial to both our countries to continue to have restrictions at our border. But those restrictions are, are mostly uh, for tourist and recreational activities of travel through the border. It is critical for both our countries to continue to have our goods and services be able to flow freely through the borders. Uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, we would have over $2 billion worth of goods and services across it. And our goal is to continue to 
make it as easy as possible for trade. And we also need to make sure that we have an, a, an ability to have our critical supplies for our supply chains go back and forth between our borders. It is uh, not only a, a State Department, but it is across all our agency at the highest level of government that we all have the same goal to increase trade, increase our economies, and increase our trade between the borders. Well, thank you. I would urge you, I'm out of time, but I would urge you to um, continue to work very hard on that issue because it is having an impact on um, my state and I know other states that border Canada and really depend on that trade. And um, as one of our, as you pointed out, one of our oldest and best neighbors, it's unfortunate to have um, not just COVID-19, but some of the tariff issues interfere with that relationship in the way that it has. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to all of our witnesses for their testimony today. I wanted to start with you, Mr. Pop. I wanted to talk to you for a moment um, about the issue of corruption and freedom of the press in Guatemala, the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. Um, was widely considered one of the most successful efforts there to uh, curb criminal threats to democratic rule, but about a year ago it was effectively disbanded. And since then, you've seen a rise in attacks, um, malicious lawsuits uh, against prosecutors, judges, civil society actors, but we've also you know, lost a tremendous tool with respect to promoting the rule of law and fighting corruption. Um, what do you foresee as, as our ability to try to reconstruct some of the entities that had been successful? What's the ability for Congress to appropriate funds to State Department accounts that would assist you in those efforts there? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, it's, as you note, uh, been a challenge uh, in Guatemala for uh, some time around corruption, rule of law issues, impunity. And I believe it's critical that uh, the United States continue to partner uh, with not only Guatemalan government institutions, uh, but also civil society, uh, the private sector, and institutions across uh, the country to deepen the capacity of the, those that are fighting for uh, access to justice, ending of impunity, uh, and increasing uh, the uh, transparency within Guatemala. It's good for business. It's good for access for uh, Guatemalans to achieve justice. And the U.S. government, uh, with support from Congress, has obviously provided uh, assistance to Guatemala for some time to help develop that capacity. I believe that it's critical to continue uh, to build uh, support for institutions and the prosecutors uh, that have made some progress uh, on combating uh, corruption in Guatemala. There's much more to be done. I think uh, that if confirmed as ambassador, I think there's much that can continue to be done, including using uh, our voice as the U.S. government in support of those actors uh, that play such a cru crucial role in civil society and outside of government, uh, including independent media, uh, to call for transparency and to uh, end impunity. I also believe that there's tools uh, that the Congress has given us uh, including visa revocations, uh, global Manitsky sanctions, and other tools that might uh, be necessary to use at times uh, to underscore the importance 
of access to justice in Guatemala. I sometimes worry about our overuse of those punitive measures, and so I hope that you'll keep in touch with this committee about ways in which we can help support and fund some of the uh, domestic initiatives to root out corruption. Um, Ms. Kenna, thank you for being here. Um, I was uh, glad to introduce uh, one of my constituents, but I should note your Connecticut connections, having attended the University of Connecticut uh, and spent some time in New Haven. Uh, so uh, glad to have uh, two folks, at least two folks, with Connecticut connections before us today. Um, uh, Ms. Kenna, I uh, am deeply concerned about the overclassification of information. I, I think it's a problem that has been become worse in this administration, but uh, you know, frankly has been a tool that presidents of both parties have used. Um, and there are very strict requirements as to what information can be classified, and it all is connected to whether the disclosure of that information would be damaging to the security of the United States. Um, but I want to ask you a question because I understand you may have sent a communication in your role uh, as executive secretary um, for um, internal deliberations um, regarding sensitive decisions being made by the department uh, to be classified, regardless of whether it met the actual requirements in statute regarding classification of national security data. Did you send a communication suggesting that internal communications within the agency regarding sensitive decision-making be classified? Thank you for the, the question, Senator. I am not familiar with this the particular um, message that you're referring to, so I would have to go back and take a look for that. Uh, what I would say in terms of classification is we, we adhere to the law, and, um, and that is our goal. But you would agree that internal deliberations, regardless of how sensitive they be, are not inherently allowed to be classified. There's a strict set of requirements as to what is classified and things that are politically embarrassing or politically sensitive are not in, are not in, in that uh, set of, uh, uh, of criteria. Well, I would not think that, yes, yeah, simply because something is politically sensitive, that would not make it classified, no. Um, so my role as executive secretary is to ensure that, that we have processes in place um, so that those determinations can be made and by the proper authorities. And so when, when we get requests for guidance or when I have questions myself, I make sure that I go to the experts. Um, I, I hope that if I have further questions for the record on this topic that you'll respond to them. Thank you, Senator. Thank Arnold. you very much. Thanks. Senator Kane. Thank you, Senator Portman. Um, Ms. Ken, I want to follow up on a, an issue that you were discussing with Senator Menendez. So my understanding is, as executive secretary, you do review correspondence coming in to the Secretary of State? I review, yes, many memos, correspondence coming in, yes, Senator. And you testified that you were aware of a package of documents that came in from Rudy Giuliani, but you did not review them. Why did you not review that package? Okay. I, it is not my specific role to review every document before it goes into the secretary's office. My role is to, um, my office reviews um, the decision memos, the information memos, the, the letters that the secretary is going to sign, um, the you know, other memos that are going to the deputy secretary and our undersecretaries of state. So it, 
it's not my responsibility, however, to review you know every single package or document before it goes. Were, into were the you told office. not to review correspondence from Rudy Giuliani? No, Senator, I was not. D describe for me the kinds of correspondence that you don't review. So you've told me the kinds that your office does review. So if something comes into the office, I guess there's a go no go decision. This is something that we review. This is something that we don't review. So describe for me the kinds of materials you don't review. Sure. If something would be marked, you know, eyes only for the secretary, I wouldn't. I would not review it if it's in a sealed envelope. From, you know, occasionally we get things from other cabinet secretaries from the president um, that are marked eyes only. If if th something is marked personal and confidential, I wouldn't review it. What was the uh, Giuliani package I, sealed envelope, eyes only, or personal only? I don't know, sir. Do you I'm have sorry. a recollection of that package coming in? I have a recollection that we, of, uh, of yes, of the package arriving at the State Department. I can't recall exactly how. And do you and do you have a recollection of your thinking about whether this was something you should review or should just? go directly to the secretary? I did not, no. In, in that particular case, no one brought it to me and said, here's this package. So you so you were not in a position to make a decision about what to do with that package. It, it just got right to the secretary without routing through the executive secretary's office? Yes. Thank you. Mr. Pop, I want to ask you a question to follow up on Senator Murphy, because um, this one troubles me. The CISIG was established by the UN and the Guatemalan government with significant positive pressure from the United States under the administration of George W. Bush because of the massive corruption and impunity challenges in Guatemala. And in that sense, it was a little bit similar to the Maxi, which was established in Honduras during the Obama administration between the U.S., the Honduran government, and the Organization for American States. So in, in the last year, the Honduran president has pulled the plug on Maxi, and the Guatemalan president has pulled the plug on Sisig. And in both instances, it's been widely reported that the U.S. basically gave him a green light to do that, that the effort of the U.S. to help establish these anti-corruption investigative <coughs> tribunals, uh, which were bipartisan, that the Trump administration basically decided that it's okay, you can terminate them. In the case of Guatemala, it's, it has been widely reported that because Guatemala um, agreed to move their embassy, Israel, embassy to Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and also because I think they were helpful with U.S. policy regarding Taiwan, that the Trump administration basically said, do whatever you want with Sisig and we don't care. And in the instance of Honduras, while the State Department was advocating for Maxi to be re-upped with the OAS, the DHS was in Honduras trying to cut a third-party deal so that asylees and refugees from Honduras to the United States could be immediately returned to Honduras. So in both of those countries, I lived in Honduras uh, for a while and still have some pretty strong ties in that region. In both of those countries, it's widely seen that anti-corruption efforts which were paying off that had been established with strong U.S. support were basically abandoned with U.S. consent. Now, I get that in the relationship between the United States and other countries, there's some trades, we want this, they want that, but I don't know that abandoning anti-corruption efforts that were hard fought and were initiated with U.S. support is ever something we should trade away. 
And it appears that that's what we've done in Guatemala and Honduras. And since corruption is one of the things that often drives bad living conditions and then leads to people leaving their countries to come to the United States, it's actually not just bad for those countries. It can be very counterproductive for us. Tell me in your background, and you've, you, you've been a longstanding and well-regarded career professional, why I should believe that if you're ambassador to Guatemala, you will really carry an anti-corruption banner in a dramatic and public way uh, to help Guatemala deal with what is a very serious issue. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, I agree, it's an extremely important uh, issue for Guatemala corruption, and, and it's true in, in many uh, countries, including uh, several that we <coughs> served in. Corruption is a pervasive, uh, corrosive impact, and it's, it's very, uh, in my view, short-sighted and imprudent to separate uh, the corruption fight in any of the countries, including uh, particularly Guatemala, from other issues. Uh, by not addressing corru corruption, you're undermining oftentimes your other uh, goals and U.S. national interests. So if confirmed uh, as ambassador, uh, I would firmly commit, as I've done in, in several other countries, worked assiduously to uh, speak out uh, against corruption, to engage uh, not only entities and individuals within the host government that are fighting for corruption, uh, fighting against corruption, uh, but also other actors uh, in society uh, that have a vested interest in carrying the fight against impunity for transparency and access to justice. And I think uh, a U.S. ambassador can play a very effective role uh, in helping not only uh, guide mission uh, strategy on using assistance to build capacity, but also speaking out uh, for uh, what is oftentimes unacceptable uh, behavior around corruption, uh, as well as uh, use the tools uh, that are provided uh, through technical assistance, through, uh, at times, uh, punitive measures if necessary. Uh, but I've, I've worked in a number of countries where this has been challenged. Uh, and I, I, to me, the thing that works the best is being engaged, being consistent, and using all of those tools and working with all those partners, including our international partners, uh, whether it be the UN agencies or uh, other countries that are engaged in the fight against corruption. Thank you, Mr. Powell. Thank Thanks, you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <clears throat> Ms. Kenna, let me return to you. Uh, I'd like to recap the commitment you made earlier to make sure we're clear for the record. Um, I appreciate that you're willing to appear for an interview, but I want to clear a few things up. I understand that state offered a date of August 7th, which you referred to, to the House, and they rejected the terms because they're tied to your appearance to Undersecretary Bulatow's appearance before the committee and because they tried to exclude staff from the interview. So once again, to be clear, do you commit to appear for an interview with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the House Foreign Affairs, the House Oversight, as requested with staff on political retaliation and the firing of the IG Linux period? Yes, Senator. Okay. Uh, and regardless of what Undersecretary Bulatel does or doesn't do, right? Yes, I, I am going to have to defer a little bit to my, uh, my State Department colleagues to work out the modalities. I think the reason why they proposed that Undersecretary Bulatow go first was because I had absolutely no knowledge of the Inspector General's firing, no role in it whatsoever, had no discussions with anyone about his firing. So, and 
Under Secretary Bulatow was the the primary yeah. uh, point well, of contact. Well, re regardless matter. of what may be uh, a reason, right? It seems to me that a request for Congress in oversight cannot be conditioned uh, in a way uh, that undermines the very essence of the request. So I understand, you know, when you say you'll have to defer to, I, I don't want to hear at the end of the day that you that the commitment you are making to appear then can be quashed. Uh, by some actions of the department. You're committed to appear, period. I am committed to appear. I, I want to cooperate. I, I appreciate that, yes. and I look forward to that. Now, while you are here, let me ask you one question. You just alluded to it, but uh, you were aware that the State Department Inspector General had requested records into the potential misuse of resources by Secretary Pompeo, were you not? Um, I have, the Inspector General has requested to interview me in conjunction with an investigation into the misuse of resources. That is correct. Okay. And did you discuss that request with the Secretary? I did not. Did you discuss it with Undersecretary Bulatow? Uh, no, I did not. Are you are you referring to in advance of the firing of the Inspector General? Senator, uh, yeah. Did, did you yes. did you re discuss the request that the IG made of you to interview you with either the Secretary or Under Secretary Bulatow prior to uh, his firing? No, Senator. The Inspector General came to me and requested an interview after the Inspector General was fired. I see. That request came after. I have. Uh, advised the Inspector General that I'm very happy to be interviewed, and we have a date for that interview. To your knowledge, was the Secretary aware of the existence of the investigation? Uh, to, my, to my knowledge, he was not, but it, certainly not through me, because I was not aware of that investigation. Was he aware that the IG's office had requested documents? Uh, no. I don't, not to my knowledge, certainly not from me. As you know, the appropriate use of resources has been a topic of scrutiny at the State Department. Were you ever instructed to engage in any use of resources you did not think appropriate? Senator, I try to run the Executive Secretariat with utmost integrity. When I have questions about the appropriate use of resources, we have a system in place where I refer to our experts, and we have a number of offices that are, that are responsible for that. They give us guidance, and it is my commitment to follow that guidance each and every time. Yeah, so let me repeat my question. I appreciate your answer. Were you ever instructed to engage in the use of any resources you did not think was appropriate? Senator, I have not. Are you asking if I I've, have I've knowingly Misused resources? Is that your question? No. Did you, were you ever instructed, meaning you were told by a superior, right. to use resources that you did not think was appropriate? Uh, no, Senator. I was not instructed to, to you know, misuse resources. Have you ever yeah, personally witnessed any such inappropriate use of resources? Senator, what I, what I have witnessed is that the use of resources is generally consistent with what I've seen um, in terms of the support we've provided to every Secretary of State since I've been in this office. <coughs> but as I said, when I have had questions, I have asked for guidance, and I follow that So guidance. evidently there were times that you did have questions. Yes. Uh -huh. So let me ask you one final thing before I just move to Ms. Levy. Uh, 
As you know, there have been concerning reports under this administration of attacking and retaliating against career public servants at the State Department. Some have been reassigned based on, upon assumptions about their political affiliation or national origin. Others have been labeled disloyal or called radical unelected bureaucrats by senior administration officials. And I can't think of anything that's more cancerous for the department or career employees across the government. Are you familiar with some of these allegations? Senator, yes, thank you for the question. I'm familiar with the, uh, with the investigation into uh, those reports and the Office of the Inspector General's report. And in your time in the Secretary's office, did you ever hear any career employee referred to as, quote, Obama holdovers or a reference that they could not be trusted because they had worked for the Obama administration? Uh, no, Senator, no one has said that to me in the Secretary's office. All right. Let me turn to uh, Ms. Levy, if I may, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you have a colorful history of public remarks uh, prior to your nomination. In 2010, in an interview, you publicly stated, quote, I feel very strongly that Harry Reid and the Democratic Party are destroying our country and destroying our way of life. My family escaped the communist revolution in Cuba and through hard work made a great life for ourselves in this country. Harry Reid is trying to deny that opportunity to others, close quote. Now, as you may know, <coughs> Senator Reid is a close personal friend of mine. And as you might imagine, I have strong opinions about using the communist revolution in Cuba as a backdrop to attack Democrats and Senator Reid. So I want to ask you, do you honestly believe the Democratic Party is trying to destroy the United States or your way of life? Thank you for that question and for the opportunity to clarify my remarks, Senator Menendez. In 2010, I was a private citizen. I was not speaking in any official capacity. It was in the course of political elbow throwing and what, what I said then, um, I, I do not believe today. I, I think, you know, it was at, in the heat of the moment and uh, no personal offense was meant. It was simply policy disagreements. Well, and what there's a difference between a policy disagreement and suggesting that someone's actions or views and the Democratic Party are destroying our country and destroying our way of life. When and if you are confirmed as an ambassador, uh, you ultimately represent the, the nation as a whole. That does not mean you represent only the Republican Party when you are at that country post. It doesn't mean you only respond to Republican members of Congress in their request for what's going on in your country. It doesn't mean that you only treat those members of your staff who might very well be Democrats differently than you would treat those who are Republicans. I mean, it's, you know, to characterize it as, well, I was a private citizen, but it's the beliefs that you held. I am sure you wouldn't have made such a statement <coughs> if you didn't hold those beliefs. I mean, is, 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 our ambassadors are supposed to serve as representatives of all Americans. Is this the type of comment of diplomatic speech we would expect of you if you're confirmed? Sir, if, if I'm confirmed as U.S. ambassador to Chile, you will find in me a very like-minded partner 
I will be a representative for all of the American people. Politics is one thing, and, and, and at least in the campaigns and in the political arena when I've been involved, we, there, there are times that elbows are thrown, but once the election is over, we unite for the good of our community, for the good of our state, and the good of our country. Yeah. And that's what's very important and that's what's needed today. I have always been a consensus builder and a bridge builder in my community. Let's, in the efforts I've led, I have run projects and large committees. Let's, let's talk about that. All backgrounds <clears throat> and all Let's talk about that consensus builder because uh, I'm, I'm familiar with throwing elbows. Sometimes you throw an elbow and you fracture a rib though. Uh, in 2016, you posted on Twitter a piece of literally fake news claiming that Michelle Obama's mother was receiving a $160,000 a year pension from the federal government. Is that the type of social media that we can expect on you? If no, you sir. I, I retweeted something that turned out to be fake news, and I, as soon as I learned it was fake news, I immediately re I apologized for it. Did you apologize in the same way that you posted it? Yes. On, on Twitter, I apologized for it. And I, I fell for fake news. And at, I was as an not ambassador, As an ambassador, we cannot afford for you to fall for fake news. I agree. News. And I realize what, a, social, what a, a powerful tool Twitter and other forms of social media are. And my intention, as, if I am confirmed as ambassador, is to work very closely with my public affairs team on posting uh, positive and constructive uh, things on Twitter and other social media platforms. Right. I, you know, I learned I learned my lesson with that particular All right. well, tweet. You know, and if you go through other things, you won't find that sort of thing. Okay, let me ask you about this one. In 2016, you published an op-ed in which you stated that people are, quote, seriously troubled by the prospect of Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination, close quote. You added, quote, he is vulgar, ill-mannered, disparages those whom he cannot intimidate. His modus operandi is to try to intimidate people, then call them names and columnate uh, about them, and then, if those tactics do not work, to sue them, close quote. Now, uh, how, how, uh, how do you reconcile that with the, your uh, accepting a post nominated by the person who you so described? Um, Senator Menendez, first of all, I honor and I thank you for your service to this country, and my desire is to serve the United States of America and the American people. I believe that the United States and the, and the people of America deserve competent, strong, positive leadership, and that is what I tend to provide. And um, again, that was in the course of a political campaign when I was supporting a different candidate. Elbows were thrown. The election was, when, when the election was over, we came together for the good of the American people. Well, and I pledge to you mm -hmm. that if I am confirmed, that is how I will conduct myself. I will be representing all of the people of the United States of America. Every political persuasion, every idea, every thought, and it will be my honor to do that.
Thank you for your questions. Uh, thank you for your answer. I, I hope what, it pass, what is passed is not prologue in this case. And we will be in the midst of another uh, election <clears throat> as uh, if you are confirmed being in post. So I would not expect that as uh, the United States ambassador uh, to Chile that you would be engaged in the politics uh, of our country as you're representing us abroad. I have substantive questions uh, for our two nominees uh, to Canada and Guatemala, but Mr. Chairman, you've been generous with your time. I'll submit them for the question. I am looking forward <clears throat> to substantive answers uh, to my questions. Uh, and uh, uh, I thank you, Mr. Chairman. For the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Thank you uh, again uh, to all of you for your willingness to serve, to your families for uh, the sacrifices that they will share with you, and we sincerely appreciate uh, the generosity of your time uh, in this meeting. With that, the uh, committee is adjourned. <laughs>